Thank you, Pastor Kelly. Yes, the children can head out at this time. And we're going to take the offering at this time as well as the uh, children are heading out and as we uh, prepare for the message this morning. Uh, One of the things that uh, we do quite often after church is go out to a restaurant to eat. Uh, Sometimes we head out with some of our friends that we've gotten to know over the years. Sometimes we connect with some new people that we maybe just met that Sunday or a Sunday before. Uh, But you can get to know a lot about other people, especially other people from another culture, if you look at the food they eat and how they eat it. Do they eat it cooked? Do they eat their food raw? Or maybe they even still eat their food when it is still alive. Um, Are their diet more plant-based, meat-based, fish, noodles, rice, potatoes? What kind of utensils do they use? Do they use forks and knives or chopsticks? Or maybe they just use their hands, their fingers? Do they sit on the floor? Uh, Do they sit on chairs? Do they sit around a table? Do they sit around a fire? You can learn a lot about different people and their culture and their values by studying how they eat food and what kind of food they eat. But if you study it like that, it will all be purely academic. The only way to really get to know people from another culture is to move to the next step, and that is to actually eat with them. As the missionary prayer that Ron Hiller has uh, often told us goes, Lord, where you lead me, I will follow. What you feed me, I will swallow is a prayer that all people that begin to work interculturally have to learn to pray and accept. Although I have to admit that I was unable to swallow a plate of fish heads and fish eyeballs that I was served one time in Cameroon. Even when I was told that serving the head of an animal is actually a sign of them honoring you. That's why they're giving you the head of this animal. And I I just didn't want to be honored that way. And so, fortunately, uh, the lady that was kind of taking care of me, she, she left. Her name was Mercy, and mercifully, Mercy left for a, for a few minutes, and I was able to secretly feed my fish eyeballs to the uh, chickens that were kind of running around, which I discovered chickens like fish eyeballs, um, and, and could kind of get rid of it that way. Uh, the book of Acts has a lot in it about food. And this shouldn't surprise us because the book of Acts is about how Jesus' story moves from predominantly one type of people group, the Jews, and the Jews even in Jerusalem, to a story that starts to penetrate different cultures. Jews that have also been affected by different cultures as they have been scattered around the Roman Empire. But also it begins to move beyond the Jews to the Samaritans. And then even beyond the Samaritans, we see it starting to reach people of all types of cultures. The Ethiopian eunuch, um, the Italian uh, Cornelius that we talked about last week. We see the gospel message, Jesus' story intertwining with people of other cultures. And so food becomes front and center in the book of Acts. Because culture is 
very much associated with food. And how we get to know each other is by how we eat together. It's so interesting that the central symbol of the church is a meal. It's a meal in which God's people come together around a table where we are all one in Christ. Food can be that which brings us together, but food can also bring with it a lot of controversy. And controversy that goes beyond just our taste buds. In the book of Acts, this food controversy starts rearing its head all over the place. Questions start to arise already in the last chapter that we looked at last week. Like, if I'm a Jewish follower of Jesus, do I need to still adhere to kosher food laws? If other people that are Gentiles, become believers in Jesus, do they need to now start adhering to kosher food laws? And what about people that are from non-Christian backgrounds, non-Jewish backgrounds, uh, maybe they worshipped many of the Roman gods, and they regularly bought food and ate food that was sacrificed to different idols and different gods. Now that they are Christians... Are they allowed to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols? These are the kinds of questions that the book of Acts starts to deal with. And we have similar questions today. If uh, I'm invited to a Hindu wedding, and I recognize that the food at the wedding has been dedicated to Hindu gods, can I eat that food? Should I avoid restaurants where there's a statue of Buddha in it that is blessing the food that is being made there? Should Christians participate in Diwali and eat the samosas? Or what about Halloween and trick-or-treating and snacking on all those chocolate bars? These are the kinds of questions and issues that became dominant in the early church. And became dominant to such an extent that they even had to have a council in Acts 15 to start talking about these things. Because they meant more than just the food. They started to reach into culture. And questions started to arise as what parts of culture can still be adhered to as a Christian and what parts of culture must be denied? And what parts of culture divide us as Christians and what parts of culture can bring us together? And so these were the issues that the book of Acts deals with chapter after chapter. It's why the story of Peter the Jew and Cornelius the Gentile in Acts chapter 10 is actually repeated three times in the book of Acts. And sometimes you ask yourself, why does the Bible keep repeating these stories, and not just in a way that it says, refer back to chapter 10. The story of chapter 10 of Peter's vision that we talked about last week, Peter's vision of the sheet that comes down from heaven with all the different types of food on it, where Peter is told to take and eat, And Peter at first says, no, Lord, I can't eat that food. And then God says, 
don't say you can't eat what I've declared clean. And then right after that, he has these people show up to his house and take him to Cornelius. And Peter begins to recognize all the meaning of this, that now all of these cultural barriers like dietary laws and food and either in other cultural barriers too are to be set aside so that all people can come to know Jesus. This story that's told in all its detail in Acts chapter 10 is repeated in Acts chapter 11. It's also repeated again in Acts chapter 15. And you're thinking to yourself, why don't you just save some scroll space and just say, refer back to chapter 10. But no, Luke, who wrote Acts, writes the whole story out again. And so if you're reading through the book of Acts and you read Acts chapter 10 and you go to bed that night and then you wake up in the morning and decide to continue on with Acts chapter 11, you might think that you're reading the same chapter. But there is a reason that Luke does this. And that is because he recognizes that when points are important, repetition is the key. The story of Peter and Cornelius is not just an incidental side story. It is central to the whole book of Acts. So just like when Paul converts, his conversion story on the road to Damascus is repeated three times in the book of Acts. In the same way, the story of Peter and Cornelius is emphasized three times in the book of Acts. We have tended to, in our Western way of looking at things, only emphasize the Paul conversion, very individualistically looking at it and seeing that as that's key. I mean, it's repeated three times. Jesus wants us to surrender our lives to him. That's why this story is repeated over and over. That's the gospel message. And it's true. But Acts just as strongly emphasizes the fact that when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we become part of a new community that is intercultural. And that's just as much a dominant gospel theme in the book of Acts. Which is why the story of Peter and Cornelius is also repeated three times. You can't have one without the other. You cannot have individual salvation separate from the community of God's people, the church. Those men that are going through the study theological study that we've been doing on Wednesday night. This last Wednesday, uh, we were just talking about the key importance of the doctrine of the church that is sometimes pushed aside as a secondary doctrine. But it's never seen that way in Scripture. And so in Acts 10, again in Acts 11, and once more in Acts 15, we have the story of Peter's vision and encounter with Cornelius. Every good teacher knows that repetition is the key to good learning. Which is why sometimes I don't understand when people say things like, you know, certain songs are too repetitious. And I'm like, that's the key to good learning. Repetition. That's how you memorize Bible verses. Repetition. Uh, advertisements. Political propaganda. They all recognize this, that learning happens through repetition. And so whenever you see something in Scripture repeated, the author is trying to really ingrain those ideas into our mind. And so God is telling Peter, 
over and over through this repetition, that he is to enter the house. And not only enter the house, but even eat the food of Gentiles. Why? Because here's the repetition over and over again. Because God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. He does not have a favorite people group. God cares for all people. God loves all people. And God is calling all people into a new community with him. He has different assignments for people groups. He gave Israel in the Old Testament a very specific task. But it wasn't because Israel was God's favorite. It was simply because that's the people he chose for a very specific task to bring about his message of salvation to the world, which ultimately came in Jesus. Because God does not show favoritism. He brings salvation. He brings forgiveness to everyone from every background. And in doing so, he brings together a new family in Christ. A family that is thicker than blood. A family that's thicker than politics or nationality. And for some people, they know this in a real specific way. I, I met with a, a lady two weeks ago who is from a Sikh background. She's 25 years old. She became a Christian about uh, two years ago. We went out for coffee. And she was telling me everybody in her family is Sikh. And she has been completely rejected by her entire family. Her new community, her new family is the church community. Because her Sikh family has rejected her. Seeing that what she has done is, is not only rejected her religion, but her culture and everything. Her church becomes her new family. This is also what is behind Paul's instructions around food in his letters. Because again, it's about more than just food. It's about incarnating Jesus into the different cultures that we go into. So just as Jesus set aside the glory of Godness to come into our world so that we could know him and interact with him and he became like us, so we are called to take on that same mission of Jesus. Which means setting aside the things that are about us for the sake of others. Entering into other cultures, other people's homes, other people's spheres of influence so that we can bring Jesus to them. This is why Paul can even advocate in his letters that Christians can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Why? Not because we believe in those idols. Paul actually says the complete opposite. He says that we really know that these idols are nothing. They're, they're meaningless. They're nothing. And we know that all food is sanctified by God. And so he says, don't worry about it. If food's been sacrificed to some idol in some marketplace somewhere, go ahead and eat it. Because we know that food is really belonging to God. 
The only food stipulation Paul gives is to refrain from eating things when we are around what he calls the weaker brother in the faith. Maybe someone who is brand new to the faith. And he says, if what I do may negatively affect them, I need to, in that situation, because of love, exercise restraint. So if somebody's new in the faith, and in their newness in their faith, they still believe that these Hindu gods still have power over their life. Because they're still sorting through all of this. Then in their setting, it would probably be wise for me to refrain from eating food sacrificed to those gods. Because for them, it might cause them to stumble and thinking that I'm endorsing that. But the hope is, is that as we mature, and as, as that person matures as well, they eventually can get to the point where they recognize those gods are meaningless, those gods have no power, and in many ways we have the freedom to eat that food because by even doing so, we are proclaiming God as the ultimate authority and that he has the authority even over these gods. We want people to mature. Those that are have been in the faith for a long period of time, can no longer use the excuse of being weaker in the faith and need to be challenged on some of those things. And so when I do mission work in Africa, I refrain from drinking alcohol because that is an issue there. To see a pastor or somebody drinking alcohol would be an issue for many of the African Christians. But when I go to Brazil and do mission work, I don't refrain from alcohol. In fact, on my days off in Brazil, the church leaders often take me to wine testing uh, places in some of the Brazilian vineyards. And to reject wine, I'd almost have to say no to every single house I enter into. It's much more um, kind of like an Italian or European culture that way. It's just part of culture. You would actually be considered quite rude to constant, and, and kind of a bit of a legalistic teetotaler to constantly be saying no. And so this is what Paul's saying, that, that in the same way as the message for Peter and Cornelius to the Jews and the Gentiles that were also there with Peter and Cornelius, and what they're learning in Acts chapter 10, is that we now put Christ as the dominant central point to who we are, and he is our true culture. And so things like dietary laws and rules and cultural things can no longer be things that divide us. They are to be things that bring us together. And the only time I should refrain is that in not refraining may divide us. Paul says the ultimate goal is no longer a list of rules. The ultimate goal now is love. What is the most loving thing to do in this situation? That's what guides us. And that's what this is all about in the book of Acts. That's why when the book of Acts starts, the Holy Spirit comes. And how does the Holy Spirit manifest itself? Himself in the beginning of Acts? Everybody starts speaking in tongues. The book of Acts starts right from the beginning by saying this is a message for everybody. And then the first issue that crops up in the church is an issue between the Jewish widows and the Gentile widows. The Gentile widows feeling like they're being overlooked in their needs and the Jewish widows are being given favoritism. 
And the whole issue there is the first issue the church deals with when they set up those guys to start looking after this is not about charity or a food program, although they do look after charity and a food but it's about racial issues. It's about this can't be happening in the church. There can't be favoritism between one group of people because of one race that they're from where another race is being overlooked. And so we see right from the beginning of the book of Acts that this is what Acts is trying to emphasize. Holy Spirit comes, messages in all languages. Now the church problems cannot be about relational um, um, intercultural issues anymore and they need to deal with that and that's why then you see the story going out to the Ethiopian eunuch that's why Peter has his vision that's why he now encounters Cornelius this is why in Acts 15 the council of Jerusalem happens because it has to have an actual council to sit down and talk about these intercultural issues that's what Paul continues to write about and as the whole message of Acts moves out all the way to Rome and beyond The story of Acts is a missionary story about how we become a missional people as a church that encounters people very different from us. It's about crossing cultures. It's about embracing the very basics of the Christian gospel, which is putting my desires, myself aside for the sake of others. It's kind of Christianity 101, but we need to practice it all of our life. It's about putting myself and my culture aside for the sake of others so that I can love them and I can show them Jesus. That's what Paul means when he says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I, was, when I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under the law. Even though he says, I'm not subjected to the law. I lived under the law even though I'm actually not under the law. Why did I do this then? I did this so that I could bring those to Christ, those whom are under the law. But then he goes on to say, when I'm with Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, then I too lived apart from the law so that I could bring those to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God in regards to uh, the law of Christ, he says. When I'm with those who are weak, I share in their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything so I can save some. Now, if you didn't understand Paul's motives here, you could say Paul is just a big compromiser. But compromise is not a dirty word in the church. Paul was willing to compromise, was willing to say, when I'm with these people who are strictly obeying the law, even though I know that that is not actually what God calls us to, but they still don't understand who Christ is, I'll adapt and I'll put myself under the law in order to win some to Christ. To hopefully then help them to realize that they no longer have to be under that law. When I'm with these people over here, then I'm going to adapt and become like what they are like. And when I'm with these people, I'll adapt and become what they are like. Why? Because I'm motivated not by compromise and not by trying to be liked by everyone. I'm motivated by love. Love for people and love for Jesus and love for 
allowing other people to find and know Jesus is a way higher priority than following all of my cultural rules and etiquette and traditions and everything else. That's what it's all about. That's why Paul was willing to be so adaptable. But why does Acts tell us Peter's vision and his encounter with Cornelius in Acts 10, like last week, and then immediately again in Acts chapter 11? I mean, I get this whole repetition thing. But why immediately after? Why not at least give us a couple of chapters of some other stuff and then come back to it, and then a few more chapters and then come right back to it? It seems very redundant to read a chapter, end it, and then read the next chapter and basically read the entire thing again. The reason for this immediately retelling is because of what happens in Acts chapter 11 and how it starts. After Peter and his crew of six returned to Jerusalem after the whole incident with Cornelius to report to the church in Jerusalem what happened. To tell the church in Jerusalem about the vision he had, about how Cornelius had sent men to Peter and Peter went with these guys and that Peter then met with Cornelius and Cornelius' relatives and his friends and shared Jesus with them, ate with them. And then he tells the church in Jerusalem that Cornelius, his friends and relatives all became Christians. And then he tells them that not only that, they also all were baptized. And then he says not only that, but they also all started to speak in tongues. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit to prove that God approved of this whole situation. Now you'd think that when Peter comes back to the church in Jerusalem and gives them this message, the church would throw a party and be like, this is awesome news. Jesus' message is spreading to all of these people. They're becoming believers. They're getting baptized. They're being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is great news. But as Peter comes to Jerusalem and shares this message with the people in the church of Jerusalem, guess what? He discovers that there's people in the church with the gift of criticism. H.B. London, who was a pastor to pastor, through his ministry with Focus on the Family, used to call these people the congregational joy suckers. He says, every congregation has congregational joy suckers. And here we're introduced to them in Acts chapter 11. So after this wonderful story in Acts 10, Acts 11 begins this way. Soon the news reached the apostles and the other believers in Judea, that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So what happened now makes its way to Jerusalem. And they hear that the Gentiles have actually heard the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, hear this, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Isn't it amazing? 
And Peter comes back and he's all excited. He's pumped up. I mean, some of you have experienced this when you've gone off to maybe a summer camp or to a conference or something. And you come home and you're like, Jesus is really doing things. I was just over here and all these people became Christians and the Holy Spirit came upon them and you're all excited. And people said, I heard that you ate with them. They're more concerned about Peter breaking a supposed law, rule about whether or not he can eat with Gentiles than they are about these people's salvation. This reminds me of, a, of something that happened when I was a youth pastor. We had a high school right across the street from the church that I pastored at Northgate Baptist in Edmonton, where I was a youth pastor for six years. And one of the things that I did at Northgate is I took one part of the uh, church and designed it into kind of a drop-in center. We called it the abode. And it was a place where teenagers from the high school could just hang out after school or during their spare. And we had foosball tables and uh, different types of games and uh, places to just play cards and hang out and do homework and music and all of this. Uh, and the people from the high school, that the teens there started coming over, and I would kind of hang out with them, get to know some of them, and shortly thereafter, some of the teenagers actually started coming to our Friday night youth group. And as months went by, there were even a couple of those youth that started by being connected to the abode and then coming to Friday night youth group. A few of them even became Christians. Uh, and I remember uh, guys like Ashley and Craig and some of those guys that, that became a Christian through all of this. And I was so excited about what God was doing through this abode drop-in center. And I started sharing this with the congregation. I was supposed to give a report at an AGM about some of the things happening in youth group. And I started sharing this wonderful news with the congregation. And after I was done, some of the joy suckers stood up. And started complaining that the bathrooms weren't as clean as they used to be. And they were coming to church on Sunday morning and there were cigarette butts outside of the doors. And, oh yeah, there was also a woman's bra that was discovered behind the church by someone. I don't know how it got there and I don't need to know the story. And suddenly, the state of the cleanliness of the bathrooms and the habits of these new or not yet Christians became more concerning to those in the church than the fact that some people were becoming followers of Jesus. Instead of saying something like, this is wonderful, maybe I could volunteer and come an hour early on Sunday mornings to clean up the cigarette butts. Instead, they were like, maybe we should shut down this whole ministry because there's cigarette butts around the church. It's so easy, even in the early church days, to get caught into that and to miss what God's doing. And be more concerned about things like, Peter, you not only went into the house of these Gentiles, you even ate with them. And you're a church leader. I mean, what are people going to think? It's terrible. You, 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 need to, you need to think about this a little bit more, Peter. I mean, it's bad enough that you're reaching out to Gentiles, but to even eat with them. I mean, maybe if you really have to do that, at least invite them into your house. Don't go to their house. You don't have to be in Christian leadership long to know that criticism comes with the job. 
And usually it comes more from inside the church than outside the church. I've had my fair share of it, and most criticism comes always from the inside of the church um, rather than the outside. Even... even um, uh, we did the, the Ugly Christmas Sweater series. I went to Value Village and I bought all these ugly Christmas sweaters. I was standing at Value Village and the lady at the till, she said to me, why are you buying all these sweaters? And I said, oh, I'm doing this sermon series in my church. I'm a pastor and I explained it. And she was like, I don't go to church, but if I were to go to church, I would want to go to a church like that. You guys sound fun. That sounds cool. And then somebody else in the line also said, that's kind of interesting. I've never thought about Christmas that way. But I sure, sure got criticism from inside the church. Why did you wear those sweaters? It wasn't really appropriate for Christmas, and on and on it goes. That seems to be where it comes. Like Peter, church leaders need to remember that they work for God. And that their ultimate responsibility is for God and not for people's desires, inside or outside of the church. So what we hear in Acts 11, verse 4, after the criticism comes, it says Peter told them exactly what happened, verse 4. And that's why Luke retells the whole story, essentially to deal with the church critics. Happened in chapter 10, he gets criticized for it, and so Peter tells the whole story again. It's kind of like, you know, when sometimes people say to me, why do you preach the same thing over and over again? I mean, have you, you've hit that topic so many times. I'm like, well, I'll keep preaching it till we get it. Just go over and over and over again, the same things. That's what Luke is doing. Well, the church hasn't got this yet, and so we'll do the whole thing over again. And so for the next 14 verses, Peter tells the same thing that happens in Acts chapter 10. And if you haven't listened to last week's message, I'd encourage you to do that, because I'm not going to retell that whole story again today. And then after reiterating what happened with the dream in Cornelius, Peter says that without having to become Jews, this is the point of the whole story in verse 18 of 11, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting from their sins and receiving eternal life. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's a really key word that Peter says here. Who was I to stand in the way of God? Who was I to stand in the way of God? God obviously has called these people just like he called us and gave them the privilege to repent and to receive Jesus so who am I to stand in the way of God? I mean, there's a double um, uh, meaning to what Peter's saying there. First of all, he's saying, I'm standing with God on this one. He's also, in a way, saying to the church leaders, be very careful here. You may be opposing the very thing God is doing. It's like earlier in Acts where Peter respects the governing authorities, but when they tell him, that he's no longer to preach in the name of Jesus, he says, I must obey God rather than people. And now he's saying that to these church leaders. In that instance, he was saying that to people outside of the church, people persecuting the church, saying, hey, I obey God rather than people. But there's a time you have to say it to even church leaders. In fact, in this instance, it even says that some of the people opposing 
Peter were some of the apostles of Jesus. And Peter, as much as he respects these other church leaders, some of them who may even be his friends, he also knew that there was a time when to follow even his friends was to stand in the way of God. And he had to say, look, who was I to stand in the way of God? This is obviously what God's doing. Whether you like it or not, this is what God's doing. And I cannot stand against that. Many of you know that I have become a soccer referee last summer. My kids say that I give too many soccer referees illustrations now since I'm in that mindset all the time. So to date, I've refed about 30 games. And I've discovered something that may surprise every one of you. And that is that as a referee, people criticize you once in a while. It's just something that kind of goes with the job. It's surprising. For instance, last Sunday... I called a handball on someone who was in the penalty area, and when a handball happens in the penalty area, you get a penalty kick, which is direct between you and the goalie. It's almost like giving a team a goal, and sure enough, this resulted in a goal. Well, the coach of the team that the penalty kick went against was livid at me for awarding this penalty kick and gave all these excuses. That person didn't have time to move their hand out of the way and all these ridiculous things, which just, that too bad. If you don't have time to move your hand out of the way, but it's in the way, it's still a handball. And he approached me even after the game, was disagreeing with me, um, and even started to question my abilities as a referee, and on and on again, it went. Well, debriefing the incident later with one of the senior referees, as, as, the, as being newer referees, we have like these mentors and stuff, um, so I was debrief, debriefing this with a senior referee after, uh, and he sent me this email. He said, hi, Steph. Thanks again for taking the game you did. You made the call the way you would normally make the call in that situation, and that's how it should be. Remember, you are not there to please everyone. You are there to do your job as a referee. And then he signed it. I mean, it's, just a, it's a good reminder for us even as Christians as well. My job as a referee is to answer to a higher authority, and that's the rules of the soccer game. My job as a referee is not to have coaches like me, or players like me, or fans like me, or to even have my own need for validation be approved of. I have a specific task to do, and that's what I have to do, despite whether I'm loved or not loved, that's what I need to do. And it's the same way for us as Christians, particularly for those Christians that are in Christian leadership, either in vocational Christian leadership or as volunteers. We have a higher calling, and the calling has to be a higher calling than the desires of the church members, a higher calling than family, a higher calling than even other church leaders or traditions, a higher calling than, again, our own need for validation and being approved of or liked. Ultimately, our calling is to stand with God in what God's doing. Peter is about to discover this, just as Paul is about to discover this. As God said to Ananias about God's calling of Paul into the ministry, he said, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Suffering 
goes with the territory. Why? Because God, just read the Old Testament prophets, God rarely takes the way that's popular with the masses. And to be one who speaks on behalf of God is to then get caught up in taking the way less traveled, less popular than the masses. Which is why some of the Old Testament prophets at time were like, Lord, can I just quit? I don't want to do this anymore. I don't even want to do this calling. And then they said, and yet I'm compelled in, within me because you called me to this. And so, Lord, I'll be faithful despite the consequences. And that's what makes the, the following part of this chapter, as it starts to wrap up, so special. Because as we continue on in Acts... We see how the racial issues are still prevalent, even in regards to everything that Peter said. But we also see a breakthrough starting to happen. In verse 19 of Acts 11, it says, Meanwhile, as Peter's sharing all this stuff about what's happening, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death went and preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. So you notice how they're still kind of this inner circle thing. However... Here's some breakthrough. Some of the believers went to Antioch from Cyprus and Serene, and they began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord. And then from this group of people that begins to cross into these other cultures, we're introduced to one of my favorite Bible characters. An individual by the name of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas has already been briefly mentioned in the book of Acts. And those two brief pictures of Barnabas tell us a lot about his character. In Acts chapter 4, we discover that his name is actually not Barnabas. His name is Joseph. Barnabas was given to him as a nickname. Because Barnabas means son of encouragement. I mean, what a great nickname. If you could have a nickname as uh, people are like, who's that guy or who's that girl in the church? And you're just like, ah, I forget their name, but they're the encourager. That's how Barnabas was known, the encourager. That tells us tons about this guy. And then in Acts 9, when the church was suspicious as to whether or not Paul really did convert, it was Barnabas who reached out to Paul took the risk to find out whether or not Paul's conversion was real and then came back to the church and advocated on Paul's behalf. So knowing that Barnabas is good at this kind of work, he's an encourager, he builds bridges, it's Barnabas that the church sends to investigate the message Peter's bringing back. Okay, we're going to go to Antioch, and you're going to go find out about all these Gentile believers that this Peter guy ate with, and you're going to go and tell us if this really happened, if these people really did become Christians. And so Barnabas goes and comes back and verifies what Peter says, and not only verifies, but then fights for the inclusion of Gentile believers. Verse 22, when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and he saw the evidence, 
I mean, listen to the character. Barnabas wasn't just a, a quick, easy-believing guy. When he arrived, he saw the evidence. So he did look for evidence of God's blessing. And when he saw the evidence, he was filled with joy. This is no joy sucker. He was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers. There's his nickname coming through again. He encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Later, we're going to find Barnabas even challenge Paul. I mean, this is, this is Barnabas. He doesn't, you know, he's not just for people's parties and sticking with people. Paul, who he advocated for, later on when Paul doesn't want John Mark to come on a missionary journey because he thinks John Mark's too weak and won't hack it, Barnabas now advocates for John Mark against Paul and says, we need to take this guy. This is what this guy's like. Barnabas also at the end of 11, chapter 11, is the one responsible for bringing Gentile money that was raised for the Jews in Jerusalem because of a famine. I mean, the Barnabases often get overlooked by the celebrity Peter, Paul, and James Christians who write books and letters and plant churches and go on preaching tours. But without the Barnabases, our churches would lose their relational integrity and could become very harsh places. I mean, for all the wonderful work the Pauls and stuff do, they, they can be pretty in your face. The Barnabases are the oil that keep churches joyful, encouraged, bridge building. I even found a ministry this week called, called the Barnabas Bridge. I don't know anything about them, so I'm not advocating or not advocating them. Uh, but what a great image of what Barnabas was, the Barnabas Bridge. He was a bridge. It's interesting that it's here with Barnabas in Antioch that we read it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. It was at Antioch with this whole incident with Barnabas where Christians, followers of Jesus, were first recognized with that nickname, you guys are little Jesuses. It also, for the first time in Acts, says this in connection with Barnabas. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea. There was a famine that were going on. The Gentiles collected money for the church in Jerusalem. And for the first time, it uses these words for Jewish Christians in connection with Gentile Christians to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judah. It's no longer us and them. Those Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, they're brothers and sisters. That's family language. That's Barnabas. This is the gospel. It's not just individual salvation, but salvation into a new family where all people of all backgrounds are brothers and sisters on one criteria alone Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. And it was Barnabas, obscure Barnabas who kind of worked in the background that started to really knit the church together. Oh, for more Barnabases in the church.
People have found love and forgiveness and acceptance in Christ. And therefore, as the Barnabases go and encourage us, we should love, forgive, and accept one another. It's for this reason that Christian worship is centered around a meal and why we're going to end with communion again this week. When Christians partake of communion, we show by our eating that food no longer separates us. It's no longer a barrier. It's what brings us together. Christ's food to us is our common union or our communion where there's no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, liberal or conservative. We're all one in Christ. Many churches practice communion on a weekly basis. For as Scripture says, whenever you get together, do this in remembrance of me. Not just once a month, once a year, once a special ceremony. Whenever you get together, do this in remembrance of me. Because as Kelly prayed in her prayer, Christian worship is centered around a meal, around a table, where we're all equal in Christ. Because you are what you eat. We are Christians. Why? Because we eat the body and we drink the blood of Christ in communion. We are what we eat. We can see that God has given everyone the privilege of repentance of their sins and receiving eternal life. And since God gave this gift to everyone, who are we to stand in God's way? And so communion is offered to everyone. It's Jesus' offer to everyone. That he has proclaimed forgiveness of sins and has given you new life in him. Not only so that you can have God as your father, but that you can be part of a new family and have brothers and sisters. It's your new community. The table is open for everyone who has said yes to Jesus. I want to be part of that family. No one can stand in your way. As Peter said, who am I to stand in God's way? If God has touched your life, as God has called you to salvation, you're welcome. Jesus is the one who welcomes you. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. Said, this is my body given to you. Whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, when Jesus took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of this cup, do it in remembrance of me. I'm going to pray and then ask those who are serving to come forward. I will serve them first. And then when the praise team begins the music, we'll invite the rest of the congregation to come forward at that time. We do have gluten-free bread here on this side, so if you do need gluten-free, and if you are unable to come forward, Pastor Joe will be going around and will serve you in your seat. While I'm praying, I'll ask those who are going to serve with me to come forward at this time. Lord Jesus, we come to you in worship. We bow before you and we thank you for forgiving our sins 
and for bringing us together as a new people. Lord, we participate in this meal as an act of worship and as an act of solidarity with one another. May we love and forgive each other because we've been loved and forgiven by you. In Jesus' name, amen.